awesome of the plain. You know, you drive down the highway and you see these beautiful uh, blue flowers growing along the side. She's kind of saying that. You know, I might, I might be pretty, but I'm just, a, I'm just a flower on the side of the road. Why are you fooling with me? I don't understand how you love me the way you do. And the picture is, and the application is, so much of the time we feel that way. When we fail, why do you love me like you do? When we mess up, how can you possibly still love me? When we go astray, make mistakes, fall to sin, whatever, our, our, we're hesitant. We're, we're like a little dog that has been whipped, and he, and he approaches you very, very cautiously with the tail tucked and the head down. We, we come to Jesus not understanding how he could possibly love us after that. I'm only a blossom of the plain. You could get anything you wanted. Why are you fooling with me? She wondered how he, her wonderful shepherd, could see anything in her at all. Now, we stopped here last week, and now let's look at his response to her. When she says, I'm just, I'm just a, a highway flower. Why are you messing with me? The shepherd responds to her struggle with encouraging, loving words. And, and what he says to her, no, he's saying it to you. He says in verse 2, like a lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. A lily among the thorns. Now, if you don't understand what those flowers mean, that goes right past you. So here's what the Palestinian lily was. The Palestinian lily was a flower that normally grew in the midst of wheat. It was a humble plant, but one that was adorned with regal color. Humble, but beautiful. The shepherd saw his beloved as a lily among thorns. You know that you may feel humble. You may feel like, hey, you know, why'd he fool with me? But he looks at you and he sees beautiful color. The women of Solomon's court, on the other hand, for all their worldly polish sophisticated airs, expensive clothes, overpowering perfumes, costly jewels were thorns. A lily you are, Shulamite, among the thorns. They were brambles, these court women. They were brambles and they were thorns. They were marked by the curse. And Jesus sees his church as the shepherds saw the Shulamite, a lily among the thorns. Amen. I want you to say with me, I am my beloved's, and he is mine, and his banner over me is love. Isn't that good? You're his lily among the thorns. Now, Paul knew all about this, and he wrote, consider your calling, brethren. There were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, not many what we would call who's who's. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world, the humble, to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. God reaches down and grabs the no counts and touches them, changes them, raises them up, that when they deliver his word and mirror his life, the glory goes to him and not to them. He doesn't choose many mighty. Where were you when God found you? I guarantee you, you are not where you are tonight. Now, while we are a humble lot, we are to him as a beautiful lily amongst 
a world that bears the mark of the curse. He looks at his church and he sees a lily. He looks at the world and he sees thorns. He loves the thorns, but right now the world primarily is rejecting him, spurning him, turning him out, pushing him away. And so where does he find his delight? Amongst his people, the lilies of the valley. Now next, the Shulamite responds to the shepherd's heartwarming words. He says this to her, and she's moved. And she describes the shepherd in two ways. She says, first, uh, you're like the bounty of a forest. Now look at verse 3. Like an apple tree among the trees of the woods, so is my beloved among the sons. So, folks, this is beautiful stuff. This is beautiful stuff. This is just flat-out romantic stuff. What would it do to your spouse if you went home tonight and said, my dear, you are like an apple tree? <laughs> In the woods, my beloved. I mean, you could freak your spouse out after this series. Now, look what she says. She said, I sat down in his shade with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. Now, he compares her to a lily, and then she compares him to an apple tree. We have some high-level praise going on here. You're like a lily to me. Well, you're like an apple tree to me. She compares him to an apple tree. First thing she points out about this tree is its protection. I sat down in his shade with great delight. Now, Kathy, anytime we go anywhere and, and we're going to park, um, doesn't matter where it is, Walmart, which we call Walmart, eh? We go to Car Target, we call it Target. But Walmart, wherever we go, she looks for a tree to park under. You know why? In the middle of the summer? Because summer heat in Texas will melt your leather. So she looks for a tree. And when I ride my bike, I, I can't, I, I love it when I finally get under some trees where there's some shade. Because trees offer protection from the burning, beating sun. And she said to him, you're like protection to me. Now, folks, I'm going to tell you, that's what Jesus is to us. The Shulamite found protection in the shepherd. I got to think of David. He wrote this. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Same verbiage. I want to be like the apple of your eye. I want you, I want, I want to be your delight, Lord. And I take refuge in the shadow of your protection, your power, your word, your presence, your faithfulness, your loyalty, your love. They protect me in a world that is experiencing the red hot heat of an angry devil because he knows his time is short. But not only was he her protection, he was her provision. His fruit was sweet to my taste. You know what the Bible says? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Can we say that together? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now you go out and you quote that to somebody that doesn't know Jesus. They're going to look at you like a deer stares at headlights. But let me tell you something. When you come to him and you taste of that power of the Holy Spirit, when you come to him and you begin to feed on that word, I mean, I get into the Word of God in the mornings, and it's, it is like I'm at an apple tree, and I'm just plucking the fruit, and I'm eating the Word of God. 
The Bible says his word, Jeremiah said his word was like honey to my taste. And I want you to know we are to feed on the Lord. Look what David said. Uh, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. So not only is the Lord our protection, he's our provision. We feed on his love, his word, his presence, his faithfulness. Look at Psalms 37 verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land. Now read the last part with me. And feed on his faithfulness. Let me ask you tonight, are you feeding on the Lord? Do you draw from him every day? Jesus said, I'm the vine and you're the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, he will bring forth much fruit. And I have called you and chosen you that you would go and bear fruit and your fruit would remain. You know, when we abide in the vine, we are pulling on the life of the vine, the fruit of the vine, the sustenance of the vine, the water of the vine, the presence of the vine, the goodness of the vine, the strength of the vine. We're drawing from that vine. How often? Every week? Every month? No. Every single day. He is our protection. Can we read this together? He is our protection. And He is our provision. Let's try it again. I had about ten of you. Ready? He is our protection. And He is our provision. Give the Lord a hand of praise. He's good. Now next, the Shulamite is searching for superlatives, adjectives to describe the shepherd. Look what she says in verse 4, chapter 2. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Now just maybe, now this is conjecture, but it's okay. It's sound conjecture. Perhaps at this moment, the Shulamite is aware that Solomon was off feasting at his table, which kings did all the time. No doubt about it, it was a feast fit for a king. The shepherd from the distant hills, who she loved, could not have provided such a banquet. But what he could set before her was seasoned and prepared with that which Solomon could never have matched and did not even know. It was the seasoning of love which turned the slightest morsel into a feast. Now she said, thinking, well, maybe Solomon's in there having a great big feast, but my shepherd has something that he does not have. And church, it is the one thing our world does not have. Do you know what we've got to offer to the world that Solomon could not offer the Shulamite and the world cannot offer to you and me or anybody else in the world? It is the love of God, the pure, unadulterated, wonderful, powerful, life-changing word and love of the living God. She said, he, I can't have a feast like Solomon's, but, but my beloved, his banner over me is his love. And I contend that one taste of that love and nothing else will ever do. Church, believe me when I tell you, this is what the, the church can offer the world that the world simply does not have. The love of God poured out on the heart by the Holy Ghost that is given unto us. I'll never forget when that happened to me. And I could not believe the whole world was not Christian. It shocked me when I experienced the love of God being poured out in my heart by the Holy Ghost, wave after wave of liquid love. And I remember going, how in the world is the whole world not saved? How has this secret not gotten out? 
His love. It's better than money. Better than fame. Better than power. Better than anything this world can offer us. Guess what? One day, we as his bride are going to sit down to a feast unprecedented in the history of mankind. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. It says the Lord Jesus himself is going to gird himself and serve us. And you talk about a feast. You talk about something that's going to put a Thanksgiving dinner in the shade. This is going to be red hot meals served straight out of the oven of heaven's kitchen. And we're going to have a marriage supper. Until then, his banner over me is his love. And I'd rather live in a cardboard box wrapped up on some street corner with his love than in a mansion sleeping in satin sheets without his love. Amen? Now, the Shulamite next tells how the shepherd's love absolutely overwhelms her. Verse 5, sustain me with cakes of raisins. Refresh me with apples, for I am lovesick. One translator puts it, I swoon with love. Is this not, this drips with high-octane romanticism. <laughs> now, I swoon with love. She's saying, she's saying just the memory of you, because he's not there. He's, he's left again. So there she is in Solomon's pavilion, a prisoner, essentially, and she starts thinking and, remember, and remembering back to what she's known with him. And she says, she says, I'm so overtaken by your love for me, shepherd, that I'm swooning. And you talk about being slain in the spirit. She's talking about swooning under the love of the shepherd. Now, the great evangelist D.L. Moody, I, I, I remember this story, describes an experience when he was torn about whether he should go into full-time ministry. D.L. Moody lived in the 1800s. He was a Chicago shoe salesman. But he gave his heart to Christ, and as God began to deal with him, God began to, to move his heart to launch into full-time ministry and go into full-time evangelistic work mass crusades. Nobody had done mass crusades except uh, about a century earlier when the Whitfields and the Wesleys and the Great Awakening would go out in the fields and preach to thousands of people in the fields. And so you had that uh, as mass evangelism, but Moody organized it. And he would have what we know today as crusades. Billy Graham ended up calling them crusades. But he, he, he was a young man and he was struggling with this call. He, he was hesitant he was reticent. He, he didn't know whether he was going to do it or not. And then something happened. He remembers the exact location. It was so vivid in his memory. On the corner of Broadway and Fifth Avenue, one of the busiest thoroughfares in New York City, he's walking alone. And while walking along at that intersection, he yielded to God's call within himself. He gave in. And when he did that, an overwhelming sense of the presence of God came flooding over his soul. It was so powerful, it was so strong, it was so overwhelming that he hurried to the home of a friend 
said to the friend, give me a room and leave me alone. I've got to get alone with God. Friend showed him to a room. He shut the door. He locked it behind him. And the room, and this is his own words, the room seemed ablaze with the glory of God. He later told a friend, I can only say, this is quoting Moody, I can only say that God revealed himself to me and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand lest I die. Don't tell me God's not real. He had to say, stop, Lord, or I'm going to die. Your love is so overwhelming. Moody could have almost quoted the Song of Solomon here, sustain me, for I am lovesick. Ever felt that way about the love of God? Something very similar to that happened to me when I got called. Very similar. I really did feel like I was going to... I wondered if I had died. The power of the Holy Spirit has got to be remembered in the church. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. By the Holy Spirit, He reveals His love. And He can touch you in such a way that you say, Lord... I love you so much. I'm lovesick. I'm swooning. I would love to see a church of full of people walking out when the services are over, going into restaurants, swooning. The waiters say, what's the matter with you? I'm swooning with the love of God. What would they do with that? I'm swooning. Now in verse 6. She says, his left hand is under my head. His right hand embraces me. Her shepherd was holding her to himself. She was wholly his and he was altogether hers. Now, never forget, the Holy Spirit inspired these words. Why? Because this should be a picture of Christ and his church. His church should be swooning with his love. What what did the revelator say when, when he was talking to the Laodicean church? He said, here's your problem. You've left your first love. You've left your first love. You used to swoon with his love. What's happened? Well, you know what? All we have to do is start asking for it again. Lord, do it again. Help me to fall flat head over heels in love with you again where I am swooning, lovesick. I'm so in love with you. Woo! I just got Holy Ghost bumps just then. That's the way it ought to be. Do y'all realize that? We didn't get baptized in pickle juice. We didn't get religion. We got a relationship that leads to life. Now next, we find the Shulamite setting boundaries for her love. One sage wisely said this, quote, love does not trespass where law forbids. Boy, does that quote need to be given to our generation. Love does not trespass where law forbids. It is lust, not love, if it insists on its own way to the exclusion of God's laws. Now, this section of the Song of Solomon is closing out with this because the Holy Spirit wants us to understand you can be swooning in love with someone That doesn't mean there shouldn't be boundaries. 
So this section of the Song of Solomon concludes with a crucial lesson. Look at the power of the love of these two, the shepherd and the Shulamite. <laughs> you're like a lily. Oh, well, you're like an apple tree. And I'm swooning with love and good grief. You couldn't get any more in love than these two. But thinking of the power of that love, the Holy Spirit now inserts into the story the principle that will stop love from being destroyed. Now listen carefully to me, church. Love is very powerful, but it's also a very delicate flower. And let me tell you what can ruin it. Immorality. Our world says, you want to get to know somebody, hit the hay. You want to get to know somebody, go to bed with them. You don't get to know them that way. God says, you want to get to know somebody, get to know their soul. Get to know their heart. Talk a lot. Don't be alone too much. You'll get in trouble. Set boundaries. I know this isn't a jump up and shout message, but boy, is it true. See, uh, love knows how to wait. And love knows how to keep itself pure. That's what the Shulamite is showing us here. First, we have set before us the masculinity of the worldly women of the court. Now, I'm going to tell you what I mean by that. This, this blew me away. But it's true. The Shulamite says, I charge you, all, oh, you daughters of Jerusalem. Who's she talking to? The court women. She's talking to these, these court women who are sold out on Solomon, sold out on his way of life, sold out on his worldview. They are totally committed to Solomon, not to the shepherd. So she turns to them at the end of this section and she says, I charge you, oh, you daughters of Jerusalem, you court women. Now, look at the word charge. Look at the pronoun you. And look at daughters, the noun. Scholars tell us that the word you, I charge you, and the accompanying verbs are masculine. Now that's with Hebrew and Greek, there are masculine, feminine, and neuter genders. Masculine gender, feminine gender, neuter. And that's how Hebrew and Greek work. Now, the you, I charge you. She's talking to the court women, so I charge you. The you and the accompanying verbs are in the masculine tense. Yet the subject, daughters, is feminine. This is not a common gra grammatical construction because usually if, if somebody, is, if you're addressing a woman, you're going to use verbs and pronouns that are also feminine. But here, it's not. And when we do find something uncommon like this, it signals to us that true femininity has been lost. She is saying to them, you're you are girls, but you're coarse, you're rough, you're not feminine. The painted beauties of Solomon's court were coarse and vulgar. Ever heard any women like that? Their conversation was not edifying. It was crude, sexual, sensual, seductive, and it knew nothing of restraint, modesty, or decency. Now let me tell you, that's what's been lost in our day. 
not just with women, but with men. We're watching a perversion of gender in our culture where now California students are going to be able to decide whether or not, though they were born a boy, they choose rather to believe that they should have been a girl or a girl decides she should have been a boy and they can decide how they're going to be addressed, what bathrooms they're going to use, who they're going to change with in the locker room. Men in our culture are being feminized and women are being masculinized. And it's sickening. Let me just say it. I like manly men. I like manly men. Give me John Wayne, Clint Eastwood, manly men. Not these metrosexual, is it a boy or is it a girl? God makes you a man, you're a man. He makes you a woman, you're a woman, feminine, soft, decent, modest. See, she, this, this Shulamite is taking a shot at them. She's saying, all you daughters of Jerusalem, hey, you masculinized women. In contrast, we have the feminine modesty of this shy Shulamite from the country. She's saying to these women, your lifestyle, your worldliness has taken away from you one of the key components of what is beautiful about femininity. You're rough girls, tough girls, vulgar girls. Not me. I'm the Shulamite from the country. She says, she says, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field, don't stir up. Read this last part with me, church. Don't stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. What is she saying? The telling phrase is stir not up. The thought is excite not. The Hebrew word means to incite. What is she saying? She's saying quite bluntly that her passions are not to be excited, awakened, or stirred up unless it's in the right context. That's what she's saying. Isn't that a mind blower? Who would have gotten that out of that verse? But it's there. Saying, saying, don't you try to get me stirred up. Here's what they're they're really trying. Coming back to the story behind the song, it would seem that the shepherd has now retreated. The Shulamite is alone again in Solomon's pavilion. And the women of the court are intent on trying to arouse her passions. Don't stir me up. So that Solomon would find an easy, seductive mark. And she's saying, girls... It's not going to work. Don't you stir up my God-given passions until it's in the right context. And I have made up my mind that the right context is when I am finally, ultimately married to my shepherd. And until then, don't you stir me up. I'm not going to let you excite my God-given passions in an inordinate way. The Shulamite has clearly drawn love's boundaries in her life. And I'm going to tell you, our culture knows nothing of this anymore. Nothing of this. And I'm going to say with heartbreak, neither does much of the church. The church 
the world has so infiltrated the church that we have lost biblical teaching on purity and holiness and sanctification and, and true love. Our whole concept of these things has been twisted, warped, skewed. But the Shulamite is sitting here saying, Hey girls, you may have become all messed up being one of Solomon's girls. You're, you're, you're coarse, you're vulgar, you're this, you're that. But you're not going to corrupt me. You're not going to corrupt me. I may be alone, but I'm not alone. My shepherd may be in the distance, but he's still with me. I'm thinking about him. I'm loving him. He, he's my apple tree. So, so don't try to entice me towards your prince. Wow. She will have nothing to do with anything that would stimulate passion or desire out of the proper context. And so should it be with the church's bride today. Listen, church, we live in a world that is focused like a laser beam on arousing passion, lust, desire, that it might be expressed out of God's proper context. We live in a pornographic, totally triple X-rated pornographic culture. And you've got you've to shut the door. You have got to be like that Shulamite say, don't you stir me up. Don't you stir me up. I know what you're up to. And I know the prince you're trying to lead me to. And I want nothing to do with him or you or your ways. I think it'd be good for us to say tonight, I want to be like the Shulamite. Can we say it? I want to be like the Shulamite. Because that Shulamite, by the Holy Ghost, is a picture of the church. May we develop the resolve of the Shulamite and say with her, let's read it together, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. Now having passed through the hour of tenderness, now we come to the hour of truth. The setting of the story so far is intriguing. The lovely Shulamite, a picture of Christ's church, has been abducted by Solomon, a picture of the tempter. Yep, there we go. This thing freezes on me sometimes. The court women, a picture of the world, have been urging her to forsake the shepherd, a picture of Christ, and be joined to Solomon. And this is the battle we experience every day. Do we not? Now, I'm not talking to real people here today. Does the world not come knocking on the door of your heart every day? And, 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 and the court women and Solomon, the tempter, the devil, don't they come knocking every day? And you've got to have the resolve of the Shulamite every day. Don't stir me up until it's in the right context. So it hadn't worked. Her heart has remained steadfast. And in this section of the song, the Shulamite talks about her beloved, the shepherd. She describes the first day he first called her. Now think back as we read this to the first day you heard about Jesus and he talked to your heart. She's looking back at how he had originally come to her. The memory is indelibly stamped on her mind, which I believe the same thing will be with any true child of God. You can point back to the day God broke through. Now, she says, look at this, verse 8. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. I was listening to a preacher quote that verse when the fire to preach first came in my heart. He, he was sitting on a stool and he, he quoted that verse and the fire to preach dropped into my heart when I heard that verse, just for the record. Notice that the first thing she remembers about him is his voice. 
the voice of my beloved. And don't we too remember the voice of our own great shepherd when he first called us to himself? Don't you love the voice of the Lord? Amen? Uh, it may have been a quiet voice that came to you, like the still, small voice that Elijah heard, knock, 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 tap, tap, tap. I died for your sins very quietly, very gently. You said, Lord, come in. But some of us were stubborn and ornery. So it might have been a voice of warning like thunder. You're going to hell. I know some people who were startled by the voice of the Lord. But nevertheless, wasn't his voice a voice like or unlike any other voice? Adam heard that unparalleled voice in the cool of the day, walking in the garden. Mary Magdalene heard that voice of authority when that voice called seven demons out of her. Come out! And she was delivered. And Lazarus, <laughs> what a voice he must have heard. Jesus' matchless voice penetrating the frozen horror of that tomb, shattered its silence and summoned him to come out! And what a voice we're going to hear one day. I want you to know Jesus said we're going to hear a voice one day. Not just any voice, but his voice. Jesus said, don't marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves, read it with me, will hear his voice and come forth. Now catch what he just said. Dead people laying in the grave, ashes, skeletons, are going to hear his voice. Let God be true and every man a liar. The voice of the resurrector. And they're going to come forth. Jesus said they're going to come forth out of the grave. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Those words right there ought to make you afraid if you're not sure that you know Jesus. Because every single person that's ever lived is going to be resurrected. Some to life and some to eternal damnation. But every person that ever lived and died is going to one day hear his matchless voice. The Shulamite remembered first the shepherd's voice. Then she remembered his vigor. Verse 8. Leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. Now, interestingly, the word he here is emphatic. It means it could be rendered this very one. This very one is who I'm talking about, the only one. She saw him leaping over mountains, skipping over hills. In other words, the shepherd was not stopped by impossible obstacles. They all melted before him when he was trying to get to you. He jumped over the mountains that were there. He walked through the valleys that were there. He penetrated the walls that were there. And he got to you. He found you in your pit of darkness, in your pit of despair, in your lostness. He found you. And no obstacle stopped him. That's what she's seen. And did not Jesus break through barriers and overcome huge obstacles to reach us in our darkness? Do you remember where you were? And you remember how long you fought him and ran from him? Nothing, here's what she's saying, nothing could hold back the shepherd when he first came to her. Nothing could stop him. He was filled with exuberance and enthusiasm. He swept aside all hindrances with a joyous bound. He got to her, and he'll get to you. And I'm sensing by radio, somebody's listening right now, and 
I want you to know that God is going to break through on you. God has jumped over the mountains to get to you. He has skipped over the hills to get to you. He is going to find you where you are. He has found you where you are. And He's knocking on the door of your heart. Come to Him. He even overcame the obstacle of the cross in order to reach us. As the old song says, love found a way to redeem my soul. Love found a way that could make me whole. Love sent my Lord to the cross of shame and love found a way. Oh, praise his holy name. Love found a way. Now, after describing him, the Shulamite tells us how she discerns him. Look what she says in verse 9. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, he stands behind our wall. He's looking through the windows. He's gazing through the lattice. Catch this description. There's a wall, and he's standing behind it. There's a window, and he's looking through it. There's a lattice, and he's gazing through it. What does all this mean? Here's what it means. True love never forces itself. It reveals itself. But it does not trespass. It woos, but it never coerces. So the shepherd, with true sensitivity, as timid as a young deer, is the way she describes him, peers around the wall and glances in at the window. Notice he does not come marching in like Solomon and grab her and carry her off and coerce her. He doesn't come where he's not invited. The walls and the windows suggest man-made obstacles. Likewise, it is man-made barriers that are erected between the soul and the Savior. Do you remember how many things you had put up against the Lord when he was trying to get into your life? When somebody that you knew walked with Jesus started walking your way, you ran the other way. You didn't want to hear the word. You didn't want to go to a gospel-preaching church. You had walls. You had barriers erected against the Lord, strongholds that stood up against the will of God for your life. And what did the Lord do? He came up to them and he peered around and he let you see him and he let you know that he loves you. Behold, all I do is I stand at the door and I knock. I'm not like the devil that kicks the door in. I stand at the door and I knock. I'm looking through the window. I'm peering around the lattice. I want you to know that I'm there and that I love you, but I'm not going to force the issue. And if any man hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and sup with him and he with me. But you're going to have to open the door. The Lord Jesus will never force himself upon us. He's very careful not to override our will, so much so that he simply shows himself, and then he leaves the next move to us. What we're going to see is the Shulamite hesitates. When she sees him looking at the window and peering around the lattice, she hesitates. She wakes up and sees him and hesitates, and later she deeply, profoundly regrets it. The shepherd says something to her before he leaves because when she doesn't 
respond to his knock, to his presence, to his beckoning, he leaves. He left her with a message for her soul. Even though she had not come running out to him, he wanted to leave some words for her to hide in her heart. And the shepherd's call was threefold. It appealed to her will, her mind, and her heart. His call beautifully summarizes for us the call of the Lord Jesus to our own lives. I've seen this about God. God will from time to time in our life come to us. He comes looking in through the window. He comes peering around the side. Here we are. We're living our life. Now, this, she had been asleep and she woke up. I think that in itself is illustrative of somebody who's asleep in their sin and is awakened with a conviction and, and sees Jesus there and decides whether or not to pursue his invitation. But God will come to us at different times in our life with a call, with a word of direction, of guidance, of counsel. He will come to us and, and, and looking at the window and say, Here, here's what I want. And, and he knows at the time you're not going to respond. He knows that this is a, an approach you're going to remember later. He knows at that moment you are not into it, you're not going to do it, but he knocks anyway so that you can have a memory one day of looking back and saying, I remember when the Lord knocked, when he was looking in at the window, when he was peering around the lattice, when he was beckoning me, and I did not respond. And the memory of his former visit plays a part in helping us decide to this time respond. We're going to pick up next time the three parts of the shepherd's call. All right, let's stand together, can we? Pastor Jeff, I just wish you went on. As they say, leave them wanting more. But it's, I don't want to give you too much too fast because this is so rich. This is so rich. When I share with you next time what his three-part call was comprised of, it's just going to blow you away because it's exactly what happens to us. Can we just lift our hands to our great shepherd? Has he been peering through the window? Peering around the lattice? Beckoning you? Calling to you? And you have sat up, as it were, and you've seen him, and you know he's out there. Why not respond to him tonight? Maybe you've never really even walked with Jesus. Why not tonight allow the shepherd to become your shepherd? I want us to say, Lord, I want to be like the Shulamite. She's the picture of the church. Lord, help me to honor love's boundaries. Pray this with me, church. Help me, Lord, to be as responsive to you 
as she was. I say again tonight, Lord, draw me and I will run after you. Now what I want us to do in this moment of prayer, I want you to give the Lord anything standing between you and him. Court women, that is the citizens of the world, the enticements, the temptations, the tactics, the schemes of the enemy that he attempts to use to draw you away from that shepherd, that great shepherd, our shepherd. I want you to say, Lord, I give to you what has come between you and me. I reject Solomon and the court and the court women. I want you. And I want you to pray that way as we just worship for a moment. Thank you, Lord. great shepherd of the sheep. Thank you, Lord, for coming to us. Thank you for calling us. Thank you for drawing us. Thank you for loving us. Unconditionally, we thank you for that love, and we praise you and worship you tonight, Lord. Draw us near. Draw us near to you, Lord, nearer than we have ever known in our life. 